Let's go against Grand Cardone and say that probably one of my two primary residences for the past 10 years is my best deal because between the two of them, I have a ton of equity. The primary residence isn't an investment, but where you live, in my opinion, is an investment and you got to pay to live somewhere. So I'd rather pay the bank a little bit of interest to live somewhere that I like instead of, you know, paying some landlord like myself to pay off their mortgage. So between the two of them, there's I don't know, probably a million two in equity, which I wouldn't have. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you can tap into it and you can do something with it, but who cares? It's nice to have a safety blanket and a little cushion. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth on Main Street without buying yourself another job. This is a show for high-earning, busy pros where we will teach you how to escape Wall Street and build wealth on Main Street. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is TJ Cozen. TJ is a veteran of the real estate industry, and today his business is focused around a high transaction volume wholesaling and wholetailing business. Today, we're learning what it takes to build a high transaction volume business and get yourself out of the day-to-day transaction level activities and to build teams, systems, and processes that can handle a lot of leads and do a lot of deals. We dig into how he thinks about finding those transaction opportunities. Should he hire more people or should he do more advertising to get more leads? Well, we dig into that today and much more. It's a great conversation, particularly for those of you who are interested in building a business and want to get a lot of deals done, but don't want to build yourself another job. Got to hire people, got to find leads, need to build systems. And that's what we're digging into today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotes. I'm a real estate investor. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, invested in, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. And if you would like to learn more about potentially doing a deal with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com, schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Once again, our guest today is TJ Cozen. Let's go. TJ, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do in real estate today? Yeah, today we run our office out of North Texas, so in Dallas, and we wholesale, wholetail, do a lot of seller finance, do a lot of flips, do some commercial, done a lot more commercial in the past, and we kind of focus on Basically, we focus on merging an exit strategy with an entrance strategy when we're negotiating on a property to kind of bump up our cash flow. And then we also focus a lot on multiple markets and multiple marketing channels to really kind of scale up the business operations. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Great. So you are what I think most people would consider a real estate veteran. Can you tell us about when you got started and what your strategy looked like at that time? Uh, well, that's a long story. I bought my first deal off of Craigslist. <laughs> it was 112 units in Memphis, Tennessee. The only problem with buying stuff in 2006 was the 2008 was like right around the corner. So that was uh, a lot of fun. I had a great time between 2000, probably, you know, I didn't really feel it too bad until about 2008 and a half until about 2011, I think kind of got out of it. So that was exciting. Very different market than what we're experiencing now. So that was, yeah, first deal. Kind of licked my wounds a little bit, went back to San Diego, flipped a couple houses, thought, hey, this is fun. And then got married, moved to Texas, you know, decided to kind of amp up the volume and turn it from more of a kind of transactional, like deal at a time kind of mindset to more of a volume-based build a business kind of mindset. And that's kind of the uh, kind of the short-term progression of how, how we got here. Great. So digging into that mindset of building a volume of transactions and really what it takes to coordinate that, but also the 
energy required, if you will, to build up that much deal flow. Mm -hmm. I can imagine there's quite a lot to it. What drove you into a high volume wholesaling type of business? Yeah, I didn't like talking to sellers. Just they bummed me out. I mean, you're motivated by two things, right? Pain or pleasure. And the pain of talking to sellers was worse than the pain of having to pay people to talk to sellers. So I thought, you know what, let's just hire some guys and see how it goes. So there's, I mean, that's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's definitely true. It's like, there, you know, there's stuff in this business that I'm fundamentally good at, but don't like doing. And I think those skill sets always kind of migrate from being like, you know, if I'm good at it, but I don't like doing it, it's always going to kind of migrate from not wanting to do it to not doing it to neglecting it. So it kind of, it kind of skews over. So what I found in the business is the best way to kind of combat that is to find someone that does like doing it, who that's their sole purpose and objective and their job, and then empower them to really just work for themselves and become successful in that role. And when I've been able to switch, switch that mindset, it was easy with apartments and it was easy with rehabs because you're going to hire a tile guy to install tile. You're going to hire a painter to paint because you don't want to paint yourself. But when it comes, for some reason, a lot of entrepreneurs, when it comes to, man, I got to pay someone to go buy a house for me that isn't going to negotiate as well as me or something like that. Now there's a pain point that's like, man, I, I don't know if I can do that. So it's definitely a leap. But once you kind of figure it out, and it's not like you actually figure it out like a switch, but once you kind of grind through it and intellectually work through it, that's what allows you to actually kind of expand the company and become from a deal at a time kind of transactional focus to focusing more about the holistic nature of growing the actual business itself. Great. Okay. So in order to have that much scale, to have that many people on your business, being able to hire people to do things that you don't want to do, you might be good at them, but you don't mm -hmm. want to do them. You have to have quite a lot of deal flow coming in and that can be both difficult and expensive depending on your marketing strategies. You know, it's a pretty broad question, but what methods are you using today to get leads mm -hmm. for the wholesaling business? No, that's a good point. And a lot of people put the... I could just say a lot of people in the industry kind of put the cart before the horse where they think an acquisitions guy is a revenue generating piece of the company. And they're really not. They're really like W2 or not. They're basically an employee in a sales position, like a high level sales position. But a lot of people think, I'm just going to hire more guys and I'm going to make more money. It doesn't work like that. You hire more guys, unless you can feed them and empower them to be successful, then you're just going to burn through guys regardless of whether or not they're good or effective. So you hit on the answer to the question, really. And the only way to do it is to increase the lead flow, increase the volume on the transactional side to make sure that the people that are working for you can be successful. Because the last thing you want to do is have a bunch of really quality guys and nothing for them to do. But you, know, you can tell them to go like drive for dollars and generate their own leads, but then fundamentally, well, what do they need your company for? So for us, it was about maximizing, I don't want to say maximizing, but about amping up the lead flow with multiple marketing channels and multiple markets so that we were able to support like actually having a team. Now, that's where a lot of people kind of, again, get the car before the horse when they're trying to build that stuff out. Right now, we focus on PPC, which is a good driver for us for revenue. It's expensive, but it's inbound and it's pretty high quality in general. We focus on direct mail. We do a lot of referral marketing because we're pretty well known in the DFW market. So we get a lot of referrals from smaller wholesalers doing JV, that kind of stuff on both sides. Sometimes we'll JV dispo with someone else who has a better list than we do for selling a certain type of product. And what else will we do? We'll do some Facebook marketing, but like very limited and very targeted. And that's allowed us to scale up the marketing side of the business better. But what we don't do is we don't do texting. We tried it a couple of years ago and we weren't great at it. A lot of people are good at it, but I know it's got its own kind of flaws. And I wish I could say that we were better at cold calling, but we're just not very good at cold calling. So every year I try it and remind myself why we don't like doing it. Okay. And yeah, the, the texts are incredibly annoying too. So I'm glad to hear that you don't do them. Pro productivity aside. So 
PPC is a very interesting topic and still seems perhaps somewhat underutilized depending on where you are. Now, I've spoken with other wholesaling folks who utilize PPC in their businesses, and I was kind of shocked by how much they pay per click. I mean, it can be pretty significant. Oh, it's expensive. Yeah. Maybe the disadvantages of PPC first. The disadvantages are if you do it wrong, you can spend a lot of money and not get any kind of results. But that's the disadvantage of really any marketing channel. And that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. You can have the wrong targeted keywords. You can have click fraud where people are clicking on your webpage and back clicking and click on your ad again to drive up your ad cost, to max out your daily budget. So you're not competitive in the marketplace anymore. But we've been doing it solid for five years, I think. So it's not really stretch to say we're better than most of our competition at it, at least in our local market. The benefits of PPC are, and, and, and that's not, it's not a pat on our back. It's just because we have the track record and we've been able to make incremental changes along the way. Whereas someone coming in new to the market, they have to kind of figure out all those changes right off the bat. The biggest advantages of PPC is if you have it optimized and targeted correctly, then the lead quality can be relatively high and it's inbound. So they're contacting you as opposed to like an outbound, like a cold call. You're calling a distress list or you're calling a uh, high equity list or something. There's not a lot of intentionality on the part of the seller. The seller, for the most part, already knows that they have a need. And then it's just a matter of figuring out whether or not our offerings can kind of fill one of their needs. So the biggest, so we transition the conversation, not even so much necessarily to the money aspect of how much do they want for the property. It's okay. What's your objective here? Like, what's your actual pain point? How do we help you alleviate that pain point? And the money is always a tool in the tool belt for doing that. But now we're kind of digging lower and we're able to have these more in-depth conversations really right off the bat, sometimes in call one, sometimes in call two. And obviously we do long-term follow-ups. So sometimes it takes six months to convert, but our best leads in terms of like, well, cash conversion cycle are definitely, you know, a lead that hits today and we're contracting this afternoon and we're selling next. And PPC does allow that to a certain, you know, a certain percentage of the leads where other lead channels vary. Other, other outbound lead channels, I don't think you can do that. Uh, other inbound lead channels, like maybe direct mail, you can do that potentially but it's generally a lot more follow-up intensive. So do you find that, you know, when you're speaking with someone that came through PPC, do they have a, tend to have a particular pain point that is the most productive in that you're more likely to close a deal with a person who has pain point A versus pain point B, or is it just kind of even they came to you and you're just trying to figure it out? There's always qu like qualified quality leads and there's always a hierarchy of quality leads. So there's no real way to not get the, the retail guys that just like, oh, my house hasn't sold because it's been on the market for two weeks and I don't know why it hasn't sold. Well, it hasn't sold because it's overpriced. So it's diff difficult to convert those unless they're open to a subject too. And we do, we do a handful of those, but they're not really one of our like big revenue drivers. So to answer your question, yeah, I think so. But sometimes they don't know they have a problem until it's almost too late. So like a pre-foreclosure lead, we're going to approach from a negotiation standpoint different than a squatter house or different than, hey, I inherited my my dead aunt's house that has no offense to Aunt Sally, but she's got trash up to here. So now I have a different pain point. So it's pretty easy to identify those pain points. But we're going to take a different hand in the negotiation when we're talking to Aunt Sally's heirs than we are for someone who's losing their house on Tuesday. And they don't realize that they've already kind of exhausted all their foreclosure avoidance options. And they're actually going to lose their house on Tuesday. So then that conversation is maybe more of a bit of a come to Jesus talk than a, let me, let me help alleviate your pain of a hoarder house. Well, let me kind of lay down to you that you're going to get 30 K out of equity out of your house with us on Tuesday, or you're going to get zero K out of the bank on Tuesday. 
Like which, which one do you want to do? It definitely comes down more to how we approach the lead, I think, than necessarily having a, a targeted lead type that tends to do better. Interesting. Okay. So how do you think about, to go back to the idea of adding team members and having things for them to do versus having enough leads. How do you think about adding new team members, making sure that you have enough for them to do because, you know, spending enough on marketing, like, are, are you getting to the point where your existing people are like incredibly busy and then, okay, I'm going to add somebody new, or are you kind of preemptively bringing in that salesperson? Yeah. I think we like having an excess of leads before we try filling a position. There's always busy work you can make a new guy do, but unless they have a clear-cut pathway for success relatively early on, they're not going to stick around long unless you want to pay salary for the first couple months to get them going. And we do that from time to time where we'll pay a couple months worth of salary and then get them some track record. But they want to have a pretty clear-cut pathway for success. So the way we look at doing that is step one, probably upping the lead flow, making sure that we have the capacity on the lead side. Step two is if they're trained from one of our competitors or if they're new to the industry or poorly campaigned, uh, poorly trained, which is actually more often than not with one of our competitors, then we almost do like a junior or senior position where they go on acquisition appointments where they might uh, have the first conversation, but then we bring in one of the more senior people to actually close the conversation with the seller. So that builds up their confidence and it sets them up for more success because with what, what differentiates an inbound lead in addition to the cost is again, the intentionality. So they cost more, they're more urgent to actually get the job done. But that means that there's less margin for error for screwing it up. Because if you have a long-term cold call follow-up lead that's going to take nine months, 10 months, 12 months to follow up, you might go through three acquisitions, guys, if you have an attrition rate on those things before it actually converts to a closed transaction. Whereas, again, you can get lucky and have it close relatively quickly. But with PPC, you can definitely, we actually have an example we're probably shouldn't even talk about. Well, the podcast doesn't come out until a couple weeks from now. We have an example of one where they wanted 250 over the phone. The acquisition guy went on the appointment. He has been with the company six months. We got the seller down to 112 and it's a burnout house. So it's got, you know, it's got some issues, maybe like no roof, that kind of stuff. And we're wholesaling it, hopefully, if it closes today for K. That's net, like above the whatever we bought it for. So that's possible with the PPC kind of thing because they have an external pain point. We have problems that we have to solve for the seller. And do I feel bad about not giving them the 250 that they originally asked for? Well, they were shooting for the moon and they don't know how to dispo it that way. No, we get to make the money. But that guy started out as a junior position, learned from my business partner, like pretty much under his wing for a couple of months, and then transitioned to work more directly for our kind of lead acquisition person. And now he's going out on his own appointments and being very successful. So the next person we're bringing on to kind of fill his role is on the same path for doing that. And they're going to they're gonna be successful as long as they follow the guidelines. So you're building people up within the business, making sure that they get trained up through experience to mm-hmm. be able to effectively negotiate deals with sellers and make profitable transactions happen. Yeah. And that came through a, a PPC. Now, I want to also d- discuss the Facebook side of things a little bit, because when you're doing real estate activities on Facebook, at least in my, in my experience, they can be kind of a pain to deal with because they keep a pretty tight leash on anything that mentions real estate in Facebook advertising. Has it been your experience and how have you kind of worked with their... Yeah. Yeah. The geographic targeting on Facebook becomes more and more difficult and it's become progressively more difficult with PPC too, but there's kind of, there's some works, workarounds that we're able to manipulate with a campaign with audiences. Like for example, we do uh, retargeting of our Google traffic on Facebook instead. So we don't do a ton of like hardcore organic marketing with Facebook, but the people that when, when we do it, 
And when it's working well, it's generally more outlying rural markets that we're trying to target. It's by having ads that differentiate ourselves from our competition. And it's about, it's always about getting engagement and talking to the, the client or the potential seller as quickly as possible. So that's, that's kind of how we do it. We do use Facebook a lot on the disposition side, kind of probably three different ways, I think. One is our own personal sphere that just sees our posts. So we're pretty, I'm pretty active on the local groups. DFW is huge and the like, like the micro group space where you post deals in groups. So it's good for dispo and those things. And then we also sell a lot of our seller finance deals on Facebook marketplace. So we'll post a deal in the marketplace. We'll post terms and then, you know, we'll get in front of the potential buyer and we'll often, well, not all, not often. I mean, we'll always offer financing on that type of deal where, you know, they, they, they're able to qualify and we write the loan for them and then they buy the house based with our financing in place. Nice. Okay. Okay. So if you spend a lot of time in real estate investing groups, particularly local RIAs, mm. I think you meet a lot of folks who are wholesalers or who want to be wholesalers. But in my observation, most of those folks will do a couple of deals a year. Most of them won't turn it into a full-fledged business mm-hmm. where they have numerous people working for them, high volume, just like you are. What do you think separates your business and your ability to create scale from those who, you know, you know no offense to them, but those who never scale beyond the one-man band yeah, situation? Yeah. It's definitely a willingness to invest in the process, probably actually first before even investing in the people. And then realizing that, so my biggest, like for me anyway, my biggest like hold up with it was taking it from a, a, a deal oriented thing, like one deal at a time, or even, you know, two or three deals at a time you can do if you're doing it by yourself to, okay, it's, you can't repeat a deal. Like you're never having the same conversation with the same seller. You're never having the same property. Yeah, that's true. But you transition that mindset to the deal, like kind of mindset to a, okay, what's repeatable about this? Well, what's repeatable about this is the process. So the marketing is repeatable. The types of conversations that we have with different types of people are repeatable. So now we're actually putting, like everyone talks about systems and processes, but now we're putting an actual process in place to repeat the process aspect of it. Whereas the deal now becomes almost superfluous. We don't care if, a de- I mean, obviously we care, but we don't care if a deal makes $500 well, not or $100,000. Now we're going to pursue the one and follow up probably a little bit better with the one that makes a hundred grand. But the process allows us to be able to do both of them with kind of, sound kind of annoying, almost the same amount of like ease. So, I mean, that's always the problem with averages. You take an average and your average is 50 if you do two deals and those are the two numbers. It's actually like 52 and a half, right? So that average doesn't actually matter. So now what do you put your faith in? Well, it's not about your average deal profit because it doesn't mean anything because you don't have a big enough sample size. What you put your faith in is your ability to generate leads, your ability to invest in your team and your employees and empower them to go out and actually negotiate both of those types of deals from different standpoints. And then that's, that's what's the more trackable, more like meaningful KPI is the lead cost, the uh, conversion cost, the contract cost, and the closing cost versus the, you know, the average, what's your average profit? And, you know, who cares? If your business is sound, your average profit is, I need to just get more leads and then I'll have more profit. So that, that's kind of how we change the mindset because too many people get ho- hooked up on like all the, the deal specifics and it's more about the business specifics that make it like leverageable and scalable. Interesting. Okay. So you don't sweat the lower margin deal, rather you look for the ways in which that particular deal can be repeated over and over and over again. And eventually you'll average out to a higher margin than the yeah, effectively. Deal. Yeah, effectively. Now, I mean, you don't necessarily chase a 5k deal if it's got 15 errors across the entire country and two of them are in jail and one of them is in Mexico, uh, like <laughs> for 5k, <laughs> like let's be sensible in the business. Our, our time is going to be better spent like 
chasing after a higher quality or higher margin lead. So it's always it's always a moving target. But yeah, you don't sweat like, oh, I, I don't do a 5K deal because it drops down my average deal price. Well, it's still, I mean, 5K is 5K, right? You definitely chase it if it's there. And uh, giving the team, honestly, giving the team more props for closing bigger deals isn't necessarily effective because now you're going to train them to only go after that stuff. You need to train them to follow the process and then rely on the process. And then they're going to get paid and compensated well for the for the actual overall outcome. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Wow. A lot of great advice here for building a high volume, high transaction volume real estate business. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you investing in real estate passively, but don't know what red flags to look for? Well, we've got the answer for you, a free seven-day video course on red flags in passive real estate investing that you can get right now by going to PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. Seven days, seven videos, seven red flags in passive real estate investing. Check it out, PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. Now back to the show. All right, TJ, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Uh, Let's go. Let's do it. All right. First one, what is the best deal you've ever done? I think it's investing in a team and building the company. I think that's the best transactional deal I've done. I haven't talked to a seller in two years and I love it. But if you want like an actual deal specific, let's go against the grain. Let's go against Grant Cardone and say that probably one of my two primary residences for the past 10 years is my best deal. Because between the two of them, I have a ton of equity. A primary residence isn't an investment, but where you live, in my opinion, is an investment and you got to pay to live somewhere. So I'd rather pay the bank a little bit of interest to live somewhere that I like instead of, you know, paying some landlord like myself to pay off their mortgage. So between the two of them, there's, I don't know, probably a million two in equity, which I wouldn't have. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you can tap into it and you can do something with it, but who cares? It's nice to have a safety, safety blanket and a little cushion. 100%. So we had the best deals. You gave us two great examples. Now we go to the other side of the coin, the worst deal. We might already know this hey, one. Might, I don't might know. Have what on is it. the worst deal? <laughs> what is the worst deal you've ever done? So deal one and two, one was 112 units, two was 98. I don't know which one was worse than the other. Both on fairly solid fundamentals, both on a submarket that at the time was very good. But when the market takes a big old, uh, between the two of them, it was a negative of probably about three and a half million bucks. I mean, that was kind of crappy. It took a while to recover from that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it. Sounds painful. It is what it is. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Mm, Yeah. I think we touched on it probably over and over on the podcast. Invest in people because yeah, just invest in people. But that's the only way to get out of doing all the stuff yourself. It's going to be a headache. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be stressful. But once, once you hit a certain stress level, just doing more stuff. It doesn't actually provide more stress. It just means you prioritize what's actually important. And part of that is knowing that, you know, when I hit this level of stress and there's someone that can take away some of that stress by doing a job for me, then we should probably hire for that position and get it done. And that's, that's been the biggest key and took me the longest time to actually realize in this business. Nice. Nice. Great one. Well, TJ, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to reach out and get in touch or learn more about what you're up to, where can they find you? Absolutely. Let's see. TJ Cozen on Facebook, pretty active, obviously, in the North Texas Facebook groups and all that. Super easy to find. TJ Cozen on Instagram. I've actually bought houses from people hitting me up on Instagram, like saying, hey, what do you think about this one? That's kind of cool. Since I'm a really creative guy, we got tjcozen.com. So it's probably not a bad place to find it. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Awesome. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. 
I appreciate that so much. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.